Jim Cimbala, the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, had been at the end of his rope. Um, his oldest daughter was a, a prodigal. Uh, he tells this story. Um, he actually told it much later. It was providential, no doubt, that uh, it popped up on my Facebook feed. It was actually last year, but he shared it again this year. Um, his oldest daughter was a prodigal. His wife, Carol Simbola, had just had major surgery, and because of the surgery, her uh, estrogen levels shot up, and she was severely depressed. He, he was at the end of his rope, and he was done. Uh, he, was, he just did not see a good ending to what was going on. But he couldn't say it. He couldn't tell the church. Uh, what was going on while it was going on for what would have, uh, I, I think, been obvious reasons. And he just couldn't, he just couldn't make it. And so, uh, in his testimony, he, he tells, he uses this quote, he says, a rubber band, even a Christian one, can snap, there we go, now it's looking right, try that. A rubber band, even a Christian one, can snap if it's stretched too far. Oh. Just not, okay, well, I'm, I'm getting the, 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 shake, the head-shaking no uh, signal. Uh, this is where we find David when we come to Psalm 6. Uh, he is a rubber band that has been, or is about to be, stretched too far. We don't know what, that looks right. We don't know exactly what was going on with him. Um, we, uh, we think that uh, it was clear that he was having physical infirmities, but we don't know. Uh, I know, but everybody's watching that. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not, uh, I'm watching it too. I'm, I'm as distracted as y'all are, so... <laughs> Uh, if y'all could see the the ants running around up there see I, I've got that view too well let's read Psalm 6 together and see what David is saying here uh, while they work on that Psalm 6 if, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you let me tell you grab one in front of you it'll match exactly what I'm reading and what may show up there uh, in, in a few minutes. Uh, Psalm 6, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are shaking, while my whole being is shaken with terror. And you, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, rescue me. Save me because of your faithful love, for there is no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in Sheol? I'm weary from my groaning, and my with my tears I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night. My eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, evildoers, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea for help. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror, they will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. All right, I'm getting thumbs up now, so that's, that's a good sign. All right, I think we're caught up. All right, good deal. 
Whereas last week, Psalm 5, uh, the thrust of the psalm was, uh, the, the, was backloaded, or the Psalm 5 backloaded its thrust, Psalm 6 here front loads its thrust. Remember, we, uh, we're doing just Psalm 5 and 6 uh, this week. Next week, Tom will, next Sunday, Tom will be preaching. Um, and then uh, the first Sunday in December, we'll begin our, our Christmas series. So we, 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 we looked at Psalm 5 last week, and uh, he, he, we kind of got that twist at the end. We were expecting one thing as we moved through the psalm, and then suddenly we realized David is, is not just talking about what's going on around him, but, what's, but he's talking about what's going on in his heart. Well, this morning, Psalm 6 is, is still a, a lament we talked about uh, lament as worship, uh, uh, songs of sorrow as worship. It's still that, but it's also a penitential psalm. It's, it's one of the seven or eight psalms where uh, David is asking God to uh, forgive him for something. Now, what's interesting about this, is, and we'll see this as we move through it, is that he's not, he never mentions a sin. There's, there's more here that's going on. What, what's happening here is the Old Testament, for the most part, has a very embryonic view of the afterlife, a very limited view of the afterlife. They, uh, you, you read some of the Psalms, occasionally they'll talk about being with the Lord when they die, or David after he lost uh, his first son with Bathsheba, uh, he, he says... Uh, he cannot come back to me, but I can go to him. They had that sort of an understanding, but generally just what they talked about was dying, and then that was kind of it. They, they did not have a full revelation of what the afterlife was. So what David is doing here is, is he's not praying for forgiveness of, of sin. He's praying that God will heal him so that he doesn't experience that separation that he is expecting when he dies. So that's the penitent part. Uh, it, it's, it's, Lord, remember me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, heal me. There is a, a request for forgiveness or, um, Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. We'll talk about that when we get to it. He says here then, uh, with this psalm then is divided into three sections. Three sections of this psalm. Verses 1 through 3 are his cry of anguish. Uh, verses 4 through 7 are his prayer for mercy. And verses 8 through 10 express his confident hope. His uh, confident hope in what God's going to do. So we're just going to work through this passage like we usually do. And we see first the, the cry for anguish uh, in verses 1 through 3. Uh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord. For my bones are shaking, my whole being is shaken with terror, and you, Lord, how long? That, that phrase, can you just hear that, that last phrase, and you, Lord, how long? It's almost like he came and finished his sentence. He's in such anguish, in such pain. Now, he says, do not rebuke me, do not discipline me. And that's, where we, uh, that's why we call this a penitential psalm. He's, he's asking God not to punish him, but as I said, he never mentions sin. 
never mentions anything he did. Other of his psalms, uh, the penitential psalms especially, he talks about specific sins, uh, especially after his sin with Bathsheba and uh, his response to Nathan calling him out. And he prays, uh, Lord, I have sinned against you only, he says, have I sinned? So then is this, well, I'm answering the question that, uh, uh, I'm already answering the question, is this repentance for sin? No. What he's doing, what he realizes he's doing, is he is about to complain about his circumstances to the sovereign God. And, and, and that would normally give people pause. And, and what we see here is him uh, going at the beginning. Uh, no, you were going the right direction. Keep going forward. I'm past that. Keep going. Next slide. There you go. One more. Two more, actually. Two more clicks. One more. There we go. He's at, now we've caught up. All right. He's, uh, he's complaining to a sovereign God, and, and, and that should make us hesitate. If, if you remember Abraham's uh, questioning when uh, the angel of the Lord showed up at his tent and said, oh, by the way, uh, we're on our way to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and if you remember Abraham's uh, response to that was he wants to bargain with God. Or, or would you do it in, if, if it were you know, 100, 50, 40, 20, 30, 20, 10 people, would you still destroy the city for the sake of, you no, know, I wouldn't. But what does, he, what does he do at the beginning of each of those uh, bargainings? Forgive me, Lord. I, I, I don't want to overstep my bounds, Lord. Uh, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm saying too much, I'm sorry, Lord. Well, that's the, the tone that we have here. David is going through this time and he's coming to God and saying, he says, God, don't rebuke me in your anger. Uh, don't discipline me. But God, my life stinks right now. This is horrible that I'm, what I'm going through. I, I, I present to you the idea that God welcomes our complaints. God is not scared of our questions. God is not scared of us, of our misunderstanding or of, 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 or of our not understanding. God is not concerned by his people coming to him and saying, God, I don't know what you're doing right now. As a matter of fact, God, I don't know that you're doing anything. It seems like you're not around. God is not offended by that at all. I would go further to say, just like I talked about last week, lament can be worship. I would say this morning that complaint can be worship. Because if you go to, if you have an issue with someone, and you go to someone else and complain about that person, what does that what does that succeed in doing? Little to nothing, except causing problems. To, to go to that person and to complain to that person that with, who, with whom you have an issue, well, that presents an opportunity to work out the issue, to come to a conclusion, to solve the problem. 
That's on a minor scale. Now let's take that to the cosmic scale, to the spiritual scale, and say when we go to the Lord and we complain to the Lord about what we feel the Lord is or is not doing, He's the only one that can A, fix it, or B, give us the answer. And when we are going to the Lord to complain, the definition of worship is to ascribe worth. Well, how much more worth can we ascribe to the Lord than to go to Him and say, Lord, you're the only one I can go to about this issue because it seems like it's all you doing it anyway. Pat, we're, we're two more clicks ahead of you. Two more clicks ahead, Pat. There you go. Uh, so we are... We, we are ascribing, ascribing worth to the Lord when we complain to Him. I submit to you this morning that when we go to the only one that can solve our complaints, when, the, when we go to the only one that can hear our complaints and do anything about it, when we go to the very one who, in every situation, allowed the circumstance through which we are currently proceeding, we are ascribing worth to him by saying, God, you are the only one I can complain to about this. That's not worship the way we think of worship. We think of worship as praise and joy and, and thankfulness and all of this stuff. And, and, and David gets there, but he begins by complaining. And that, I believe, is worship. We see that he's going through uh, what is obviously a physical affliction but best we can tell, it's not due to sin. Uh, he, I'm weak, heal me, my bones are shaking, my whole being is shaken with terror. Um, he, in, in verse 3, there's no remembrance of you in death. He's expecting to die, and he's uh, asking God that he not die. Now, there are certainly sins that are brought about. Nope, there are certainly illnesses, afflictions that are brought about by sin. Uh, the one that came to mind as I was working on this would be HIV. Very often, that is brought about by sinful behavior, but not always. Uh, the, the church, my first church that I served in um, on a permanent basis, where I wasn't a, just a summer youth minister, uh, in Prairieville, years back, I think in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, they had had a youth minister who worked at a blood lab and uh, one day he was doing his work and he accidentally poked himself with a hypodermic needle. He contracted HIV and a number of years later he died of full-blown AIDS. He got the same, that disease, totally unrelated to, to, to sin. So I say that uh, just to point out that just because there's a, a disease or an affliction in someone's life doesn't mean necessarily that there is sin in that person's life that caused it. But what I will say is that we suffer from affliction and disease because of sin. We suffer, the world groans, we groan because we live in a fallen world. So in one sense, David's Affliction, our afflictions may not be caused by our sin, but everything that we go through that's bad is because of our sin. It's a sad, 
catch-22 that we live in. David knew, though, in this situation, I'm not afflicted because of my sin. He is a rubber band about to snap. As he describes his nights of, of weeping and crying, and, and uh, some of your translations may say, my, my bed floats. He uh, uses such uh, hyperbolic language to describe it. And that's the situation he finds himself in right now. And he knows the only one he can go to about it is the Lord. Because the, the Lord is the only one with the power to do anything about it. So he prays for mercy. In verses 4 through 7, he says, Turn, Lord, rescue me, save me because of your faithful love. There's no remembrance of you in death. Who can thank you in Sheol? I'm weary from my groaning. With my tears, I dampen my bed and drench my couch every night. My eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all my enemies. He uses this word turn at the beginning of, the, of verse 4. Some of your translations may say return. Uh, either one works. It, it, it carries kind of the same idea, uh, but uh, in two different ways. If it's turn, then it, the idea is come back. He, David's in this situation where he feels like God has turned his back on him. He's left him. It is worship to cry out to God when you think God has left you. It is ascribing worth to God. We do this um, in, in earthly relationships. A, a relationship breaks down. Maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever. A relationship deteriorates for whatever reason. And at some point, somebody, one side or the other, may go to the other person and say, we need to fix this. I want this relationship to work. What is that person, person doing other than ascribing worth to the person that they're talking to? You are worth something in my life. Therefore, I want to bring you back into a relationship with me, whatever that means. You are ascribing worth to that person. I'm not going to go so far as to say you're worshiping that person, but you are ascribing worth to them. What David is doing here when he says, Lord, turn, come back to me. I am ascribing worth to you. I want our relationship to be fixed. For whatever I've done that has caused you to turn your back on me, Lord, I want to fix that. Y'all, that is worship. A point here is that you can worship the Lord in any situation. There is no situation, there is no time, there is no circumstance where suddenly, well, I can't worship God right now. And you may feel that way. But let me tell you, what you're saying is, I can't sing the songs of praise and honor and glory to God because I don't feel that right now. Then worship Him in your lament. Then worship Him in your complaint. But go to God with it. The other definition, we could, if, it, if it's turn, then it's, Lord, come back to me. If it's return, then the idea is David is reminding God of, of what he's done in the past. Return to me. Do what you've done in the past to me, how you have saved me in the past. You, you, you've rescued me before, God. Rescue me again. I'm willing to bet most of us have examples in our, our memories of when God has saved us in the past. When we were in a situation we felt we could not make it through and God did something and He turned that situation around. 
in your worship, in your worship of complaints, go to God and say, God, do again in my life what you did back then. I know you can. I know that you are able. I know that you are powerful. God, return to me and do what you've done before. And why can David count on this? He can count on it now for the same reason that he could count on it in verse 5. Uh, and chapter 5, rather. Chapter 5, 7, but I enter your house by the abundance of your faithful love. Chapter 6, verse 5, uh, or rather, verse 4, save me because of your faithful love. Now, if I were preaching at a back, black church, y'all would have all said faithful love before I did. Because you'd have known faithful love. So let me try it again. I know it's a little different, but let, here, Lord, heal me, Lord. Be gracious to me, Lord. Uh, save me because of your... Very good. Thank you. Y'all, faithful love is the basis for all salvation. God does not save us because we love Him. God saves us because He loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were rejecting Him... Christ died for us. Before you were saved, you were an enemy of God. And yet Jesus died for you anyway. Jesus died for all of his enemies. Every last one of them. The basis of salvation is God's faithful love. That's that, uh, that very Old Testament word that we can't really translate. Loving kindness. It is that love that comes and comes and comes over and over and over and is faithful and does not leave us and is beyond our ability. We would translate it in the Greek. We would say God's agape love, his unconditional love. That's the way we would compare the two in the two testaments. That is the basis of salvation. God saves because of him, not us. He calls us. He draws us. We respond to that love but there was nothing in us that caused us or that caused God to die for us. David knows as he goes to God in complaint and he feels he's on some thin ice already, eh, complaining to God, God don't rebuke me, uh, don't uh, don't discipline me as I complain to you as I in my terms, not David's, as I ascribe worth to you by coming to you with this complaint. Don't, don't rebuke me. Don't, don't, uh, don't discipline me, Lord. Heal me because of your faithful love, not because I deserve it. Deserve is not an argument that David or we can take up with God. Uh, let me do it. Let's all do it just in your head. You don't have to count it out loud. Let's all do a quick count of all the reasons we deserve God's love. You done? Good, because I am. None. Zero. We don't deserve God's love. We have done nothing to deserve God's love. That is a free gift offered to anyone that will accept it. And it is given Freely, it is given abundantly, it is given faithfully, but you don't earn it. I mean, that is the very essence of, our, uh, of salvation. That's the essence of what we as Baptist evangelicals teach, is that you don't 
earn your salvation. Y'all can't come to church enough. You can't put enough money in the uh, offering plate. You can't do enough acts of service. You can't say enough prayers. You can't do anything enough to be saved. You can only trust Jesus for your salvation. That's all you can do. And when you trust Him, you experience that salvation. But that salvation is based on His faithful love. So, so David's not going to get into a conversation about whether he deserves it or not. I think he may have known something of Job. Job tended to lean that direction. God, I don't deserve what's happening to me. I know I don't have, deserve what's happening to me. And he did that in response to his friends uh, that were telling him, certainly, Job, you've sinned. Certainly, you've done something to deserve this. So when David's talking about his enemies here, it appears that what he's talking about is not people who have necessarily caused this, in this case, illness, or caused this affliction, but his enemies are now those who are telling him that his sickness equals judgment. And he's asking the Lord not only to heal him, not only to bring him out of this affliction, not only describing his uh, affliction in verse 6, but verse 7, my eyes are swollen from grief. They grow old because of all my enemies. It is in our nature to believe when pe what people say about us. What we need to believe is what God says about us. And, and, and the Bible says... I mean, let's start with the bad first. The Bible says that we are sinners. We are enemies of God. We, are, uh, we have enmity with God. We are uh, far from Him. We are deserving only of hell. And that is our guaranteed destination as people outside of the faith. The Bible also tells us who we are once we have trusted Christ. Once we have experienced salvation, once we have believed unto salvation, John would tell us. And at that point, the Bible says we're His. There's a great worship song that's fairly new uh, that uh, talks about that, that says, We are His. I am who you say I am. And who He says we are, are His. Palm of His hand, not letting go, can't get out. He will not let us go. That's who we are. And it would be his enemies, David's enemies, that would say, no, you are, you are something else. You, you, you don't, we can go back to Job. David doesn't give us any details. Job does give us details of everything that was said to him from his friends about what was going on. You had to have done something. You had to have done this. You had to have done that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be going through this. David says, they are killing me. They're making my situation worse by their words. But David has hope. David has confident hope. There, there, there seems to be a little turn here. We don't know uh, the situation that David wrote this psalm in. We don't know uh, even how he used it. Was it just in a time of prayer? Was he specifically using this psalm as worship uh, in, in uh, the tabernacle? Uh, we, we don't know, but between seven and verses 7 and 8, something happens. And this happens a lot with David's psalms, with the psalms in general. Uh, 
maybe he wrote it at two different times. Maybe he wrote part of it and he went to church and then he wrote the set, this verses 8 through 10. They weren't numbered back then, but wrote that second, that last portion afterward. But whatever the case, or maybe it was instantaneous, maybe it was as he prayed, as he wrote this down, God just spoke to him. We don't know, but between 7 and 8, something clicked in his heart. Something clicked in his spirit. Depart from me, all evildoers, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea for help. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and shake with terror. They will turn back and suddenly be disgraced. He says, depart, evildoers, be ashamed. This language he is making clear to them based on the fact that he has gone to the Lord in worship by, in the form of complaint and heard back from the Lord. He knows, in fact, they were wrong. They were incorrect in their accusations of what was going on in his life. They were incorrect, uh, incorrectly and sinfully, or they incorrectly and sinfully contributed to his pain. We go back to verse 7 and we can see that. And then he says, he knows this, he knows this by faith. How does he know this by faith? Well, we go back to that word he used in verse 4, uh, where he said, turn or Return, especially. He knew the God whom he worshipped. He knew the, the, the history that he had with the Lord. He knew that over and over and over, God had been with him. He knew that every time he had prayed, God had answered. It may not have been the answer he wanted. Here, we see no indication of a change in health. David doesn't say, and suddenly I'm healed, and suddenly I feel great, and suddenly everything bad in my life is good. No, all he says is that God has heard. All he says is God will accept. That verb uh, in verse 9, uh, it says the Lord has heard, that's past tense, has heard my plea for help. The Lord some translations say accepts, and that's what mine says, but it's actually a future tense. The Lord will accept my prayer. Now, where is David in that? The Lord has heard. The Lord will accept. Where's he? He's in between. He's still sick. He is still afflicted. He is still suffering. But because of his history with God, God he knows God is faithful. He does not have to question whether God is faithful or not. He questions the circumstances. He questions what's going on. He questions his pain. He questions the response of his friends. But he does not have to question his God. And even if he does question his God, Michael, didn't you just say it's okay to question God and it's part of worship? And yes, I, I do think that. But always, 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 our complaints, our, our concerns, our laments as worship should always get us to the point and will always get us to the point if our heart is turned, if our heart is opened, will always get to us to the point that God is faithful. He has heard my plea and he will accept my prayers. I may be in the middle of it right now and I may see no end. And I may see no changes in what's going on. But I know my God. Nothing changed in David's time. 
Nothing changed but David's time in prayer and worship. It's amazing what spending time with God will do to our perspective on the world. Uh, last week, I was at the Louisiana Baptist Convention. Uh, I was in Ruston this year. And a gentleman by the name of, by the name of uh, Nick Ripken was a, a missionary for years with the International Mission Board. Um, basically, uh, he went to the IMB years and years and years ago and said, wherever you don't want to send people, send me. He wanted to go to the hardest reached, and he did. He spent uh, years in Somalia. I actually had, got kicked out of, of, uh, of a couple of countries because of his faith. Uh, while on the mission field, his son died from an asthma attack. Um, and he, he told a great story, and uh, I, I won't get into all the details because I won't remember them, and I certainly won't tell it as well as, as Nick did. But there was a, a Muslim gentleman who was part of his uh, team, uh, translating, getting him into the country where he was going, that sort of thing, that walked for five days. As he tells the story, he said he radioed uh, the, the gentleman and said, I, my son has died. Uh, and all he heard on the other end was clunk, the guy dropping the receiver. He didn't know what happened. He, they went on with their plans. Five days later, went to the door, and it's that Muslim gentleman. He had walked five days from wherever he uh, lived uh, to, to where Nick lived. He slept in, in thorn bushes so the animals couldn't get him. Uh, he hid in ditches so that the military wouldn't get him. Uh, he uh, didn't eat, didn't drink. Uh, it, Nick said he had gotten, he had cuts, scrapes all over him, but he was so dehydrated he couldn't bleed. Um, Nick, what in the world are you doing here? What, what, why do you look like this? The man said, I came to bury our son. He wasn't even a believer. wasn't a Christian. But Nick's faith, Nick's response to this man to love him, had put him in that situation. That didn't bring his son back. Suddenly, it wasn't like suddenly, oh, thank you, Lord, that you've got this guy who's not even a believer. I mean, he walked five days for me. Whoop, tee-doo. My son's still dead. I mean, that, that could have been his response, and I don't know what went on in his head. He didn't give us any sort of response like that. But nothing changed in his life. But, but you know what did? He realized God was faithful because that Muslim man then went to his first Christian funeral and began to ask questions and, and actually asked questions of all of his Muslim friends back in the country, which could have gotten him killed. Things like, I just went to a Christian funeral, and they rejoiced. They had joy. They knew they were going to see our son again. Why don't we have funerals like that? They talk about their Jesus, and he asked Nick this, why haven't you Christians shared your Jesus with us? Nothing could bring Nick's son back uh, nothing could change his circumstance. And, and to hear Nick tell the story, you can still hear the pain in his voice. But you know what happened? 
since then? Well, there was a time when Nick went to the Lord and, and prayed and worshipped. And God heard his plea and will answer his prayer. David knew, I can go to the Lord. And he heard his plea and he knew he will answer his prayer. Jim Cimbala decided one Sunday he couldn't preach. Uh, he, he felt it leading up to that week. You know, again, his, his daughter was a prodigal. His wife was uh, extremely depressed. Uh, he just he couldn't do it. He could not preach. His father-in-law uh, gave him a phone call. He'd gotten word of it. Uh, Jim knew leading up to the Sunday. He said that he got up that Sunday morning. He was half-dressed. He had decided, I'm going to do it, and then said, no, I'm not. And his father-in-law called him and said, you've got to go preach. You have to go. You have to share God's word with your people. I can't. I cannot do this. I, 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 can't, I can't do it. And he, he, you have to. So Jim did. And uh, uh, what he realized was he needed to take that next step. And he'll describe it and if you've ever, if you see his testimony about it. It was just one step, then the next step, and whatever the next step was. And, and, and he didn't see the end. David didn't see the end. In the midst of his prayer, Jim, getting up that morning and preaching, didn't see the end. But people came up to him and said, I needed that word. I needed what you, told, what you said this morning. And they didn't know what he was going through. But he would say, I needed that word this morning. Jim Cimbala knew that the Lord had heard his plea and will accept his prayer. And so he went and he preached and God moved and people responded. David writes scripture that tells us that when we are in the midst of our lowest point, God will, has heard our plea and he will accept our prayer. You may feel that you're about to snap. You're that rubber band and you are stretched just too far right now. And it's, it, it, you're done. Well, I have a hope, some encouragement for you. First, be certain of your innocence. Be certain that as, as you go to the Lord in complaint, that you are also doing it in, in, in introspection. You're looking at yourself and saying, Lord, have I? David knew he hadn't. David knew his friends were telling him he had, and it just wasn't true, and he confirms that at the end. But we need to be certain. As I talked about earlier, there are illnesses that are caused by sin, and there are illnesses that aren't. Uh, there are afflictions that are caused by uh, sin, and there are afflictions that aren't. It is our nature as human beings now to live in pain. We just have hope. So we're certain of our innocence. If you're about to snap, be certain and take it to the Lord. Your complaint is worship. Your complaint to God is ascribing worth to Him. You are saying to Him, I cannot do this. And then focus on the next step. We don't know what the next step was for David. He's king of a country, so we know he's got work to do. We know he has uh, people to lead, and so I'm assuming after the end of this psalm, as he knew that God had heard his plea and will answer his prayer, he got up and he went to work. He focused on the next step. 
Jim Cimbala goes on in, in that testimony to say, If the journey has gotten hard, I am here to declare to you that God gives strength to his people and that the power to put one foot in front of the other comes from the Holy Spirit. One more time. If the journey has gotten hard, I am here to declare to you that God gives strength to his people and that the power to put one foot in front of the other comes from the Holy Spirit. His faithful love ensures mercy. When you pray for mercy, when you pray for God to heal, God is faithful. His love is faithful. He will not leave your prayer unanswered. He will not leave you alone. He will not say, I'm sorry, I'm busy right now. His faithful love ensures mercy. But maybe the first mercy that you need is the mercy for salvation. Notice some things quickly. David was sure of his of God's faithfulness because of prior relationship. Return to me. Show me again what you have done in my life. Jim Cimbala could say to his people and, and to anyone who would listen that God gives strength to his people and that the power to put one foot in front of the other comes from the Holy Spirit. We're not his people. We don't have the Holy Spirit. We don't have the relationship with God that allows us to move forward in His mercy until we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. So this morning, you may need to make that first cry for mercy. You may need to tell the Lord, I understand that I'm a sinner. I know that I need to repent of those sins, to turn from my old life, and you need to ask God to forgive you this morning. You don't deserve it. And you're not doing it because you're a good person. And you're not doing it because, well, yay, I, I think I want to fix things in my life. You're doing it because God is drawing you. God has shown you your need, and you need to respond to that need. And your response is belief. You would believe that Jesus is who he said he is, uh, that he is the perfect son of God, that he died for your sins. He took your sin. He took your punishment. And then you choose to follow Jesus. You make that decision for him. And say, I want to make Jesus the boss of my life. You give your life to him. And then you experience that mercy. And everything that's wrong in your life will not go away. But I promise you that God has heard your plea and he will answer your prayer. Once you are his, you can be guaranteed of his protection, and his presence. And that's better than overcoming any sickness or affliction. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you save. Thank you that even in the midst of where we are, that you have heard our plea and you will answer our prayer. God, we thank you that there is nothing we go through that hasn't gone through your sovereign filter that nothing we go through has surprised you, nothing that we go through is in any way outside of your, uh, your, your purview, your, uh, uh, your allowance. Therefore, God, if you are allowed it and you know about it, then we know that you can take care of it as your will directs. 
But God, whatever your decision in our situation, we pray that we are as faithful to you as your uh, love is faithful to us. That we respond to your mercy with thanksgiving. We worship you even in our complaint. Lord, we examine ourselves to know that we come to you clean, clean from uh, uh, guilt, clean from responsibility. And God, we say, please, please take this from us. And Lord, we ask that you would move. But God, we thank you that you're still in the business of saving souls. Lord, you are still drawing people to yourself. And I pray this morning that someone will take that first step, that first cry for mercy, and trust Jesus Christ as their Savior today. Lord, I pray that you would move on every heart here, a decision from every person. And Lord, someone would make that first decision to trust Jesus as Savior. You work as you see fit in the lives of your people here in your church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, mercy is received, and how would you receive that this morning? How would you receive mercy from the Lord? Maybe you need to respond by accepting Christ to receive that first mercy. Maybe you need to be, uh, be baptized and experience that first obedience, that first step of obedience. Maybe you need to experience the mercy from the Lord as you return to Him in obedience and holiness. Respond to what He is calling you to do, what He's telling you to do, how He is leading you. I don't know what your decision is this morning, but I know that you need to respond to it in faith. Maybe you need to come to one of these prayer rails and you need to lift some things up to the Lord and say, God, I, I, I don't know. Are, are you there? Turn to me, Lord. Where are you? I don't know what your prayer needs to be, but I know that what you'll hear is the God that says, I've never left you, and I never will. If I can pray for you, or if Jordan can pray for you, we would love to do that as well. But whatever your decision, you make it as we stand, as we sing, and you do business with the Lord this morning.